Welcome to episode 287 of On The Schmooze. Let's do this. Welcome to On The Schmooze, the podcast that highlights talented people from different fields, explores how they built strong networks, and overcame challenges on their way to becoming successful leaders. Now here's your host, Robbie Samuels. Last week, I mentioned my idea to offer workshop is happening again in July, and I've had some folks ask me whether this would make sense for them. After reading my book, Small List, Big Results, or attending one of my Wake Up Your Network pop-up masterminds, many folks are able to put together the list of likely prospects they want to contact, but then they get stuck. The questions start. How will I line up these calls? What will I say? When should I follow up? And that stops the process completely and makes the possibility of a successful business seem further away. Stay tuned after today's interview to find out how my idea to offer workshop is the perfect remedy to get past the mental blocks and technical hurdles holding you back. Now, onto this week's interview. Today's guest loves solving the hardest puzzles from crosswords to jigsaws to the meaning of life. He is a four-time New York Times bestselling author, including the know-it-all, One Man's Humble Quest to Become the Smartest Person in the World, and The Year of Living Biblically, One Man's Humble Quest to Follow the Bible as Literally as Possible. His TED Talks have been seen more than 10 million times. He writes for popular publications, including the New York Times, Entertainment Weekly, and New York Magazine. He's appeared on Oprah, The Today Show, Good Morning America, and CNN. Please join me in welcoming A.J. Jacobs. Thank you, Ravi. It's a delight to be here. AJ, thanks so much for joining us from your place in New York City. As you know, this is a show of building strong networks, but the context is leadership. So tell me, how do you define leadership? And when did you realize you had the skills to lead? Well, it's a great question. I think leadership is what one of of my friends calls it a, um, a suitcase word because it contains so many different things. So it can mean a whole bunch of things. It can mean being a great manager, which is not me. I am not, you know, I I would not want to be a CEO of a company. I did manage people. I was an editor at a magazine and I managed about 15 people, but that's not my strength. So I think another way to think about leadership is thought leadership uh, and coming up with interesting ideas and being and getting them out there. I think I am pretty good at that kind of leadership. I also, perhaps my favorite kind of leadership is mentorship. Uh, And I love having mentees. And uh, I can tell you a quick story about one of my mentees uh, because he is now far more successful than me. He is, I love him. He is, uh, his name is Kevin Roos, and he is a columnist for the New York Times. But it started because when he was going to college, he was just a freshman in college, and he emailed me that he wanted to be a writer and could he be my assistant for the summer. And one thing that's important is it was a very funny letter, it wasn't a boilerplate letter, and it was, it talked about my work. So that's a just a great tip on how to approach people, uh, you know, make it really personal. And if you have a sense of humor, try to make it funny if it's appropriate. 
anyway, he became, at the time I was writing a book about the Bible and how some people interpret it literally. So as a thank you, I took him down to, on a trip to Jerry Falwell's church in Virginia. Uh, and his, Kevin, his name is Kevin Roos. Kevin uh, was fascinated. And on the way back, he asked me, he said, you know, I am a, I'm a student at Brown, one of the most liberal universities. Wouldn't it be interesting if I transferred to Jerry Falwell's university, which is super conservative. Like you can't watch R-rated movies. You can't uh, hold hands with someone of the opposite gender, much less the opposite, the same sex. You know, that would be way too much for Jerry. So he, um, he, th I, he said, like, what if I spent a semester in Jesus land and wrote about what it was like? And I said, that is actually a very interesting idea. And I connected him with my agent and he wrote a proposal. I helped him with a proposal and then he got a book deal and he wrote a book about what it's like to be sort of a liberal. Uh, he's a liberal Quaker in, uh, in the middle of these evangelicals. And one thing that's great about the book is it's not, uh, you know, it's not an attack. It is, it's subtle. It's uh you know, it talks about why would people, what is the attraction of this type of life? And, you know, are there any good parts in addition to the uh, many pitfalls of this? So anyway, I love, that's one of my proudest accomplishments as a writer is having Kevin as my mentee. And it came around to help me in the end because he is now at the Times and he gives me advice or, you know, why you email this person or get on this podcast and he's super connected. So that would be my, uh, my favorite moment as a leader. I have to say in all the time that I've had this podcast, no one's brought up mentorship as leadership. And I love how inclusive your definition is. And I love this story of Kevin and the idea that, you know, he's first of all, to be a freshman and be ready to like reach out, you know, be willing to put yourself out there in a thoughtful way and to say yes to going on this trip with you and to then have this out of the box idea and follow through on it. I mean, like he's a very special person, but you saw that also in him uh, and didn't just hit delete on or like archive on his email, <laughs> which as a busy person, you were in the middle of a lot of projects like that could have happened too. So your leadership shows in that space as well. I'm, I'm kind of curious, when did you first start to, to see some of these tendencies? That, like, how far back can you take us? Can you take us like what you were like in, on, you know, in grade school, on the playground? Were you organizing kids? Were you watching and sitting back? Like, did teachers right. want to call on you? Did you run for office? I don't. I, I was the editor of the high school newspaper. And I guess... Uh, if you if we focus on the leaders the thought leadership aspect of leadership, I do think that I have strived to be creative all of my life and come up with interesting ideas and be very curious and exploratory. And I'm not saying my ideas are always good. In fact, the nature of ideas is that most of them suck. Uh, I hope you don't have to bleep that out. 
but the <laughs> but uh, but it's about quantity of ideas and having an open mind and being curious. Uh, and I did that even as a kid. Uh, I remember in high school, I we lived a few blocks from the uh, Scientology Center, the Celebrity Scientology Center in New York, and uh, I was curious. So I spent a day there. I gave a fake name because I knew that I didn't want to be uh, pestered for the rest of my life. Uh, but it was fascinating. It's not something I endorse Scientology, but it, I think it's important to expose yourself to as many different points of view. Uh, so I guess the answer is I've always displayed this sense of curiosity, thought leadership, coming up with ideas uh, ever since I was a kid. I mean, it, you, you sort of uh, like wherever you go, there you are like this. This has always been who you are. And it's a it's an interesting trait, particularly in a world where we're very divided and and very, like you know, very focused on our own clan, <laughs> our yeah. own tribe. You know, we don't really want to talk to the other. Uh, and you're like, I'm curious, I'm open, and really, that's the openness is how we get past all the difference. The openness sure. is where we find similarity. And um, how did that sort of play out growing up, though? Because you know, rivalries around sports teams, rivalries around, you know, whatever, you know, neighborhoods, but you're like, oh, always bridge building. <laughs> was that seen as like a positive thing that people were like, yay, I'm so glad AJ's here to make that happen. Or were people like pick a side? Ah, That's a good question. Yeah, I guess I was a bit of a floater in terms of my social uh, group in high school. Like, you know, I, I didn't want to be part of one particular clique. I like to float between the the theater crowd and the jocks and the artsy and the the freaks and the geeks. Uh, and I think that has been a that's what I try to do now. I I love to explore different cultures and subcultures in my books and people who. You know, I, I certainly don't always agree with, but I want to see the world from their point of view, because I think the only way to change or come to an agreement is to understand the other person's point of view. So, yeah, I think uh, that's always been there. I mean, in terms of sports teams, I never uh, I it, it's interesting. I guess I never like was obsessed with uh, the Yankees or the Mets. I grew up in New York and. Uh, I was more in it for the experience. Like if I could, if I had a friend who could get me front row seats at one of, I didn't care which sport it was. I just wanted the experience. That's a really interesting perspective as far as like rooted in the experience and less in the, uh, the loyalty, like blind loyalty. I'm, right. I'm actually very similar to you growing up in high school, like friends with all the different uh, cliques and circles um, and, and really feeling like, uh, like I like that. I like the fact that, you know, I could kind of move in and out of different spaces. And uh, my favorite thing though, is to bring people together from these different mm. spaces and, and, and experiment and see what would happen. <laughs> and I am still doing that till today. So, you right. know, similar to you, it's job. like part of it's what, who I am. Right. So, um, I, I'm, I'm curious at what point you knew you wanted to be a writer and, and that's not something most people think they're going to go into for a living and be successful at like right off the bat. So did you have some other path in your teens that you were, 
you know, planning for? Was there like a, you know, then I'm going to go to college and do this. And, or were you like off right to the workforce? Like, what was your, like, yeah, I, I mean, I always wanted to be a writer because I love books so much, but I didn't think that it was a realistic dream. So I, um, I was studying, you know, for the uh, LSATs to try to go to law school. And I got a job as a reporter. I was living in San Francisco at a tiny, tiny newspaper. Like it was, you know, my mother subscribed and increased the subscription rate by like 10% just by signing up. So I, uh, but it was, it was, you know, they paid me an actual salary. It was tiny, but they, I was like, well, I can try to live on this and, and survive and see if I can have a go at it. And I, uh, I luckily I stayed in it and I kept getting slightly better and better jobs and slight, you know, it's, it's journalism. So you're not going to make a ton, but I, I was making a decent wage and, uh, I worked up from that tiny newspaper to, uh, entertainment weekly magazine and then to esquire magazine and then i wrote my first book and that did well enough that i could actually work almost you know 70 percent of my time on my books and i was sort of part-time at the magazine that i mean that trajectory for most people would have probably stopped a lot sooner because the <laughs> amount of work to pay probably wasn't that great for the first, you know, 50% of the journey. Uh, what kept you going? What, what was keeping you motivated in, on this particular career path? Uh, I, I guess how much I loved the idea of learning. It was like I was continuing college because that as a writer, there are three, at least three parts to my job. One is the research the other is the actual writing, sitting in front of a computer, and the other is marketing and publicity. So those are the three big ones as I see them. And I love the research. I love talking to people, meeting, going on experiences, going to like this book. I competed in the World Jigsaw Puzzle Championship in Spain, and that was just a blast. But uh, I don't love the writing part. I find it very solitary and yeah, yeah. I, it's just, uh, it's not fun. I don't, <laughs> I don't love it. So occasionally you'll get in the zone and be like, oh, this is, this is awesome. But that's probably 5% of the time, 95%. It's just a slog. But then weirdly the publicity and marketing, I have grown to love. I didn't always love it, but I now see it as a creative endeavor that I can try to have fun with. So I guess the answer is I kept at it because I like two thirds of my job a whole lot, even if I didn't like that one third. The one third, which is the part most people think about when they think about oh, the word writer. <laughs> right. Exactly. The writing. The that writing. makes sense. I know people, yeah. I tell people, I'm not, I really don't like writing. And they're like, well, you might've made a little mistake in your uh, career choice, which well, is possible. Maybe I would have been happier as a full-time <laughs> podcaster, but I do love most of my job. And which is more than probably a lot of people can say, uh, when you're, <laughs> uh, when you're thinking about, um, the work that you're doing, um, like at some point you set your sights 
to something bigger, right? Like you, you, you got settled in. This is actually a thing that's going to happen. You then decided to go for Entertainment Weekly and then to Esquire. I mean, that must have been exciting and daunting choices to kind of ladder up. How many years are we talking between getting that first job at the like low subscription paper publication? To- the Antioch Daily Ledger Post Dispatch. That was the actual name of the publication. It was like 14 tiny newspapers that combined into a slightly less tiny. Um, so yeah, so how, how, how many years until you're like at Esquire, for instance? Well, I guess I worked uh, probably four years at the tiny newspaper. Then I worked a year at the New York Observer. Then I worked for about six years at Entertainment Weekly. And then I worked at Esquire for maybe five years before I wrote my first uh, big book. So it's a little over a decade just to get to Esquire. Right. And then five years at Esquire. And then the book itself, I mean, your topics are just so alluring. Um, when I had a chance uh, to meet you in the Jason Van Orden, Michael uh, Roderick event <laughs> that they host, um, I had this sort of moment in my head where I was like, this name so familiar. And I like <laughs> went and did a quick search and I was like, oh, it is who I'm thinking it is. Like, <laughs> this is really interesting stuff. It's like all the time, even just the titles are so enticing. I only mentioned two, but they're, you know, they really draw you in. But your first one, Know It All, where you're like reading the Encyclopedia Britannica, um, that's not, I don't, I don't want to judge you on this, but it's like a, not a normal thought. It's <laughs> not like, that's not like, that's a real commitment. Uh, you know, like, oh yeah, no, it um, was way, I, I didn't know what I was getting into because, you know, I just had, I got the idea from my dad, which I think is a good way to get inspiration is just from your life. Just because he started to read the encyclopedia when I was a kid and he didn't finish. He made it up to the letter B, maybe around Bolivia. And he's like, I have a life. I think I better not do this. And so I was like, well, what if I tried to finish what he began and sort of continue the family tradition? Uh, but I had no idea that uh, what I was in for. And um, because it is, it's a crazy long book. It is 33 volumes and they're tiny type on big paper. I, they don't even make them anymore. So you can't, but for those who remember them, they were, it was 44 million words. Uh, and it took me, uh, I read every, every day in every way you can imagine. I, I was terrible at my job that year. I feel bad for my, uh, <laughs> for my employer. Uh, but yeah, I read, uh, you know, all the time in the newspaper, in the, um, in the subway, uh, so, all right. Now there's the reading, committing to reading it. But when did you realize it could lead to a book? Like, when did it go beyond like completely random, trivial facts that you're trying to slip into conversation in the most <laughs> probably annoying way possible to I'm going to write? I saw the part about your wife charging you a dollar for every exactly trivial she comment. She made some. Uh, she made some money <laughs> when I tried to get Ardvark into the conversation. She was having none of it. But when did you think this is now, you're not, you had not done a book at this point. Um, what made you think this could be a book? Well, I actually, I definitely pitched it as a book before I started. I did not, I was not going to do it without having the, uh, you know, end goal of writing. But I had pitched, I, I got the contract because I had written another book 
that was, it wasn't even a real book. It was one of those like that they sell by the cash register that, you know, it, it had literally about a thousand words. It was about the eerie similarities between Elvis Presley and Jesus. Uh, and uh, it was called The Two Kings. So it was like a little, you know, throw, it was a single joke that I stretched into a book. Uh, but my editor, I got along with, and of course, as you know, uh, you know, uh, a lot of business and life is about relationships and we really got along and he's like, why don't you do a real book uh, at some point? And it took maybe eight years to figure out what that real book would be. And finally, I, I looked to my, my dad and, and I was like, well, maybe if I did this, uh, because it had that more, it had a, a family element to it, which gave it a little heft. So that's how it all came about. And I, but I pitched it. I wrote the proposal and said, this is what I'm going to do. I'm not going to do it unless I get the book contract, but this is what I would like to do and, uh, and see if I can turn it into a book. I'm amazed that this really, the launch pad was this thousand word joke <laughs> essentially. Oh yeah. That was... launched you into this path. <laughs> <laughs> Most people well, would not think of that as a launch pad. That might not have, that might've killed other people's careers <laughs> to have that book come out. <laughs> well, again, it's all about relationships. I mean, that book, you know, that probably sold like 14 copies. Uh, uh, it, but it, it gave me a lifelong friend who he's still a friend of mine and he's no longer an editor, but he, um, he gave me my first real book. Yeah. And then, of course, the success of that went far beyond what you could have imagined. Right. And that gave me the opportunity to write a second book. And that actually was my most successful book, The Year of Living Biblically, where I followed all the rules of the Bible for a year. And that one I was actually very nervous about. I was not going to pitch it because it, you know, it, it's controversial. And it was sort of a humorous uh, a reverent and irreverent take on the Bible. I didn't want to, I wasn't out to uh, mock the Bible, but I wanted to write a humorous book about religion as well. So uh, it was, I try, I wanted to be both respectful and sort of irreverent, uh, but I was super nervous about it. So I don't know what the lesson is there. I guess sometimes you have to take risks because it was a big risk. I was like, I don't think I, I I, I went back and forth so often, like, I, do I need the controversy? Some people are going to hate it. And weirdly, it was not that controversial in the end. Uh, I don't know. It, it somehow threaded the, threaded the needle and people, atheists liked it because it did show that sometimes the Bible is crazy and religious people liked it because I was... I took it seriously. I wanted to see what is there anything good in religion, and and I did find you know some things like community and ritual can be very meaningful. So anyway, that was uh, yeah. I didn't expect that, and I'm glad I took that risk. Yeah, I think it was the phrase uh, a reverence agnostic. Was it? Oh yeah, thank you for remembering that. Yeah, yeah. I uh, that's your friend called you that. Like that is such a great description of what you became after living that experience. 
I mean, the fact that you just love living the experiences of things, which is why you're trying to put aardvark into the conversation and not just keep it to yourself. And then, uh, you know, you have all these platforms now. Um, You know, I mentioned at the beginning um, that you've done some TED Talks. And uh, when you and I were first saying hello, I I said I started to say TEDx and I corrected myself because you're one of the rare people I know personally <laughs> that didn't do TEDx. You literally did TED and not just one. You've done a couple of TED, you've done TED Med. Um, you've been given lots of platforms and opportunities because you're interesting and you're a great storyteller. So Thank you. what's and lucky what, Remember, and lucky and relationships. So I'm curious, Thanks. like what other kind of relationships sort of along the way gave you these individual opportunities because even doing a TED is not a given if you're a successful author you have to really you know still position yourself in the right way someone has to take notice of you right like, who decided oh you know what that guy we got to get that guy on our stage well it's funny the first TED talk I did was because this guy this uh, reached out to me and he wrote an email in all caps so I was all already like uh-oh and he says, he said, you've never heard of me, but I'm very important. Google me. And it turned out to be this guy, Richard Saul Warman, who founded TED. He sold it to Chris Anderson, who's the head now, but he had founded it. And, uh, you know, I might have, like with Kevin Roos, the, the intern, I might have, it was in all caps and it was crazy. Uh I might have just deleted it, but I'm glad I didn't because I actually I met him and he's a crazy, hilarious character. And he invited me to my first TED. So, again, uh, relationships and networking. Uh, And of course, you know, going uh, this is not going to be news to you or your listeners, but going to conference doesn't have to be TED. Just going to any conference, I think, is is a wonderful way to be exposed to new ideas and new people. I am a big conference uh, fan. Uh, and when you're, uh, I, okay, I can't have to go back to this email because you brought it up. The fact, the fact that you could have deleted it. I mean, literally there are two instances that you've already brought up uh, that are really about paying attention. <laughs> are you on top <laughs> of your, in, your inbox or is this happenstance that you, I mean, what opportunities are you missing then? I guess that's <laughs> a great point. Well, and then the other thing is, all of the crazy emails that I have responded to, and they just turn out to be crazy. So it's not always. Right. Don't, don't wire your money to Nigeria. And there right. was that period of time that you had other people managing your inbox when you gave oh, over your life. Yeah, that's true. I outsourced my life uh, to a team of people. So who Bangalore. knows what happened then? <laughs> right. But actually, I have another example of paying attention, which was I got another crazy email from a guy and he said, you don't know me. Uh, but I have read a couple of your books and I am your cousin. I am your 12th cousin. And of course, like you said, I thought he was a Nigerian scammer, but I decided to engage just a little. And it turns out he is my 12th cousin and he's part of this group of people who are trying to build the biggest family tree ever, not just hundreds of people, but millions of people. And it was such a fascinating topic that I actually wrote a book about it. So he, you know, an, another instance where a crazy email led to something good. Yeah, I, I saw a little bit about that on the, on the TED Talk talking about there's a, the last time I saw this was 75 million people. It's probably way bigger than that now. 
um, that have been all connected. I mean, it's such a fascinating idea. I think that a lot of people could have read his email, thought interesting and left it at that. (laughs) Right. Like I would say most people, if they responded (laughs) at all, would have said, that's nice. Um, And, you know, the fact that you then took it, you're very good at taking things to the nth degree. I mean, the coffee cup thing. Thank you for noticing. Yeah. (laughs) You're very dedicated to the, you know, not skipping any letters in the Britannica, you know, like, you know what I mean? (laughs) I do. I feel that that is one way to come up with ideas. Yeah. Take something to the nth degree. Um, And yeah, I love that you have, you uh, articulated it better than me about noticing is such an important part of coming up with ideas because yeah, those could have just floated by and I'm sure there have been hundreds of ideas. I've just, that have been dangling in front of me that I didn't notice, but luckily I have noticed some and it's all about paying attention. Yeah. Being, being attention, being curious and then dedicating with like absoluteness to, (laughs) to, I mean, there's, there's something about, kind of who you are that I think makes it hard for other people to replicate. Um, I still remember the first time someone sold a website where each pixel was worth money and you could buy a certain number of pixels and you can't replicate that. That that idea has now been done and it would not make sense to do that again. Right. And so I, you know, I think of that one too. That was such a brilliant idea. Such cool. So there's just I mean, even the, well, the person with the paper clip and the pen and the, you know, to the buy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So they, there's these like kind of like, how does someone commit to these ideas? You've done, you've hit lightning multiple times. So um, <laughs> what's uh, what's the thing that kind of gets in your way? You said you said writing the specific act of writing. And there's a quote that I can't remember who it's from, but about like, you know, I write whenever I'm inspired. When are you inspired? 9 a.m. every day. You know, (laughs) (laughs) that's a good I can't remember whose quote that is, but it's like, it's probably Stephen King. But, you know, it's like, you know, I write when I'm inspired. When are you inspired? Every day at 9 (laughs) (laughs) a.m. That's great. Except for the slog of it, like what else has sort of been, um, you had to lean on other people to, you know, the writing really kind of are owning, but what are you leaning on to other people to support you as you're, you're building all this out? Well, I, I love that question because you know, one of my books was all about how, how many people it took to actually make a cup of coffee. And it, it's called Thanks a Thousand because it took over a thousand people. And it's all about, yeah, the, the, the people we take for granted, but who we couldn't live without. Uh, so it wasn't just the barista or the farmer. It was also the guy who drove the truck with the coffee beans and the person who made the road so that the truck driver could drive it. One uh, answer that occurs to me is that I had mentioned that now I actually like publicity and marketing in my books, but it wasn't always the case. I I used to uh, think that it was somehow beneath me or like, you know, that's not my job as a creative person. So I had to reframe it as a creative. The only way that I could motivate myself was like to say to my, you know, this is this is a creative endeavor. I can do some interesting things. And to get back to your question about other people, uh, I would uh, I would look to other people I had met throughout my career when I was trying to sell my book and try to figure out how could I make it appealing to them. So when I wrote the book about the Bible, for instance, uh, I knew someone at Glamour Magazine. So how can I 
offer her something that would help her and also help me. And I said, well, you know, there are some racy parts to the Bible, like the Song of Solomon is very, is very it's like, you know, uh, uh, <laughs> I wouldn't say penthouse, but it's like, it is racy. So I said, what about sex advice from the Bible? Uh, and I pitched that to her and she, she liked it. And uh, I ran and that was in Glamour, which got whatever, 3 million readers, which is huge that I would never have reached. That's very creative. I mean, uh, so was renting a sheep. Uh, <laughs> Thank you for remembering. Yeah. <laughs> to walk around <laughs> the city with. Um, yeah, the you definitely very helpful. You definitely uh, are stepping above just like, you know, podcast tour or like bookstore tour um, to be creative. I mean, even just the poses and, you know, just being theatrical. Obviously, your theater days kind of come in. Uh, to all of this, uh, you get to have fun. It's like being at camp every day, I'm sure, <laughs> when you're in right. the middle of all that. Um, and then, like, does is there a cadence that you want to keep publishing books? I mean, now that you're you've committed to this process, you know you can keep doing it. Do some books, you know, take a year and a half, and some take five, and so you can't commit to a cadence. It's more like however long this thing takes until I'm done, I'll I'll know I'm yeah. done. Well, my cadence is slower than I would like because uh, this book took. I think three years, I can partly blame it on the uh, pandemic, but hopefully I can do another one in, in two years. Uh, but I, but like you, I, I like to try to have a few irons in the fire. I just, it makes me happier and I just think it's safer. So I'm, you know, I'm developing a few projects now, whether they're podcasts or TV shows or or nothing in the end, it might be, they might all go up in smoke. It's very possible. Uh, but uh, so, yeah, I, I would love to keep writing for um, a book every two years and, and do other uh, projects. Uh, but it's, you know, it is, I also, I talked about the importance of flexibility and flexible thinking that, I mean, the media changes so fast that I, I feel maybe I should take just a week off and just maybe even re-envision like where's the where do I think the media might be in five years and should I you know like the metaverse should I I was thinking about that yesterday should I do anything with uh, like you know VR it seems like a huge opportunity uh, but I don't even know where to start so maybe I should just take a day. Maybe it's just carve out a day, do some deep research, talk to some people who are in that area. Is there a way that I can contribute? You know, I, I have, I like to think I have a lot of ideas. So what, how can I make them fit into the metaverse? I love it. Very creative thinking. Since you mentioned the pandemic, I'm curious, what is the, your biggest observation from the last couple of years of living differently than you had previously? One was that I think my self-conception uh, was that I was an introvert, an introvert who liked to force myself to be an extrovert, because as I, as you know, I like to go on these adventures. But it became clear during the pandemic, even introverts, supposed introverts like me, need more human interaction. Like we, it's, we're just wired for it. And when we don't get it, we think we like, oh, this is great. We get to stay at home and in our pajamas. But no, 
that's that is not the route to happiness. Uh, we need human interaction. So that that was one that became super clear. Well, speaking of community and and your network at large, you know when I when I think about staying in touch, like you know you're going to stay in touch with your inner circle. But then when you think about that second and third tiers out or layers out, these are people that uh, you meet, you know, every year at a conference, you see them or you work with them five years ago, but you haven't seen them in a while. They're people that you like, I should mention. <laughs> uh, you, you enjoy them. How do you think about staying in touch and nurturing those kinds of connections? Are there any habits or philosophies or practices that you do that will help you, um, you know, stay, stay connected in some way? That's a good question. I mean, I this is slightly i i think this is related but for my gratitude book i decided uh as as part of it after it came out i i pledged to write a thousand thank you notes to uh readers and friends and all i had a form on the internet where you could fill out who you were how you knew me and any other information and it took me a year and a half to write that because that is a lot of thank you notes. And and I, I, I didn't just want to phone it in. I wanted to like, you know, write a full on letter. So that was a huge pain in the butt or pain in the hand. Uh, but it was it was a wonderful way to keep in touch with people. So that was one. Um, I do think in terms of efficiency, uh, uh, you know, I always dread. Uh, before I go to a party, uh, I'm like, oh, this is going to be exhausting. And then I always am happy I went because this is a very efficient way to keep in touch with a lot of people. So going to events, conferences, parties, I am all for them or even throwing part. I, I had a book party and uh, I, it, was, uh, it, was, it was one of the most rewarding nights of uh, the last year to get to see all these people. Yeah, I mean... Your, your point about finding, you know, wanting to stay in touch and create community, but also sustainable. It's probably not sustainable to write handwritten letters uh, <laughs> at length. Uh, um, I had True. someone on here, though, um, Chandler Bolt. Um, I know Chandler. Yeah. So Chandler was on here and he shared that when he was first getting started, um, he's an also, you know, he's a real go getter. He he wrote thank you letters to authors that, that he had read their books and their books were really helpful to him. And then in turn, some of them then started shipping him more books to read and strike nice. that conversation. So he wrote one letter a day. Uh, and he, I don't know if it's a practice he's still doing, but he did it for like a full, you know, year solid when he was still like, you know, in his twenties, didn't know one knew him. He didn't know any, you know, and then that, that's how he kind of quickly, became someone people appreciated and wanted to get to know. So I think um, your letter writing can be, can be done in a way that maybe is a little more sustainable than um, <laughs> a thousand yeah, letters a thousand, in a year and a half. hundred, maybe hundred. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love that story. And I think it's true. I think it's definitely true. So this is my favorite question as we're wrapping up. Um, I'm curious, you know, you and I are going to keep crossing paths, but I'm, I'm thrilled about your, your great person to get to know. But let's say it's a year from now and we are celebrating all of your successes. What are <laughs> we going to be toasting? What are you most looking forward to in the year ahead? Uh, that is a good question. Uh, I would, well, hopefully I will have my idea 
for my next book, and I'll be in the middle of my favorite part, which is uh, researching and uh, and talking about it. When I first started out, I was very secretive about my book ideas because I was worried people would steal them. And, uh, and, and now I'm the opposite. I love to talk about them because I think the benefits of talking about them is that I might tell you and you said, oh, I have a friend who's, you know, into crossword, you know, he, he makes the biggest crossword puzzle in the world. Uh, and that to me outweighs the, the, the risks that someone is going to steal the idea, which is a risk, but the benefits outweigh the risks. They'd have to steal your idea and have your fervor. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. That's I do choose projects that are very hard to pull off. So yes, you have, it is, uh, you have to have a lot of energy to steal them. Yeah. And I love the idea that you bringing it up builds interest, leads to new connections that might help you further, further your writing right? It, it creates a better end product, creates a better experience for you along the way. Yeah. I can't wait to celebrate all of this with you. It sounds fantastic. Can't wait to see what you create in the future. So how can people find you and follow your work? I am easy to find. AJJacobs.com is my website and at AJJacobs. And, uh, and yeah, the, and my new book, The Puzzler is there's a website called thepuzzlerbook.com that has all sorts of treats uh and puzzles on it uh so even if you don't buy the book it's worth hopefully checking out uh and uh yeah i'd love to hear from people fantastic we'll put all those links in the show notes at on thanks so much for joining us aj thank you robbie my pleasure hope you enjoyed my conversation with aj what is your key takeaway something you'll put into action this week that you'll benefit from for years to come Share it resonated with you in the show notes at ontheschmooze.com. Look for episode 287. That's also where you'll find all the links and resources from today's show, as well as all the archived episodes. Reach out and let me know which are your favorite interviews. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with that one friend you know would love to hear it. And don't forget to subscribe or follow for free so you don't miss next week's show. Are you a fan? That's awesome. I'd love to read your review. As I've mentioned, scheduling research calls with likely prospects who already know, like, and trust you is the best way to build an audience before trying to sell anything. You may be wondering, how will I line up those calls? What will I say? And when should I follow up? And that could stop the process completely, making the possibility of a successful business seem further away. That's exactly where the idea to offer a workshop is the perfect remedy. It's set up specifically to empower you to get past the mental blocks and technical hurdles so you can craft specific, strategic, personalized outreach that will resonate with your prospects. It answers those three questions above and even goes further, giving you templates you can customize, small group work time to craft your message, and live coaching to get your questions answered and process refined. Yes, live personalized coaching. You'll enter with a list and leave with the knowledge of how to run research calls, how to line them up, what to say, and when to follow up, and have specific and strategic outreach to achieve this part of the launch process. When is it? Saturday, July 16th from 8.30 a.m. to 3 p.m. Pacific, which is 11.30 a.m. to 6 p.m. Eastern. How much? $500, which I will match if you continue working with me. That's right. If you continue working with me, I will contribute $500 towards the cost of your next offer. If you're ready to take that next step, sign up at robbysamuels.com forward slash idea to offer. Space is limited and the session will be capped at just 12 people. Let's make your successful business a reality. 
I look forward to connecting again next week when we'll be interviewing another talent professional who's achieved success in their field or industry. I'll ask probing questions to get them to share untold stories about their leadership journey, how they built and sustained their professional network. Until then, have an awesome week. Thanks for listening to On the Schmooze podcast at www.ontheschmooze.com. That's On the Schmooze, S-C-H-M-O-O-Z-E. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.